Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. A good friend of mine, Randall Wright, said, you, you need to publish this. Like, this can actually help people. And he said, like, you're talking about leading leaders. You're talking about helping build the next generation. He's like, what if you can touch somebody? Like, what if you can make an impact? What if you, what you do actually makes, it, makes a difference? And so, um, so I just went through the process. Actually, I hired a writer, Michelle Bender, who's amazing, um, because uh, my agent, Jan Miller, said something really funny when I was talking to her. She said, you're a book. This is not a book, which I thought was really, really funny and really humbling. <laughs> <laughs> and so she's like, I like you. I like what's in there, but we got to get what's in there on here. You know, so it was, it was really funny. So I, I, got, I got real help, um, which was great. And then... Um, and then the folks at St. Martin's, um, Tim Bartley, I think he's the best editor in the world, um, made sense out of it. And, and, and it allowed me in my voice to, you know, again, I told you, I want to I want to make a dent on the world a little bit. And, and hopefully this does. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Scott, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, thanks for having me. I appreciate all you're doing to spread the creativity in the world. I'm a listener. I love what you're doing and let's get at it. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, I found out about your work and your book by way of your publicist. And as I was telling you before we hit record, the minute I saw the word CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers, I was like, I don't need to read any more of this description. The answer is absolutely yes. I'm like, let's do this. Um, but before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking what I think is a really relevant question, given some of the content in the book, and that is what religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with and how have those impacted your life uh, and your career? Oh, great question. So I was uh, born and raised a Catholic. Um, 
and and through life, I, I I went look. I went to Catholic high school, Our Lady of Lords High School in Poughkeepsie, New York, and Villanova, which is an Augustinian Catholic school. Um, and and generally not a not a Christmas Day Easter Catholic. Like we we went to church most Sundays. Uh, we had a good spiritual base um, in the house, but but not overly. And and as I look at my family now, um, splintered. So, so very, very few of my, there are five of us, four, four, I have four siblings, uh, three brothers and a sister, and, um, they go sporadically to church and some not at all. Um, uh, we, we were raised in a, in a house with, by two PhDs. So it was a, it was a laboratory for sure. Um, and whether it was, um, faith or sports or education or the way we treated each other, we always had a pretty kind of simple, we had three simple rules growing up. Let's put it that way. We had, um, it was no hurting each other, no hurting your mother and no, no girls in the bedroom. So can you imagine, <laughs> like, as a, as a, as a kid now, again, it was a different era. So I grew up in the seventies and eighties. I'm, I'm a, I was born in 1970. So, um, di- totally different era, but that was it. No curfew, no, you know, no have to do your homework. N- none of that stuff. Um, a, a really like uh, I guess we grew up in a in a so, sort of a hippie type household early, um, and my folks, um, you know, I, I was a product of the system. So food stamp kid when I was really young, um, mm-hmm. puffed rice and uh, powdered milk, and um, and then my 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 folks did very well successfully. So I went from food stamps to country club, and then back down again. Um, so I I I think I learned a ton about. Um, life and people and connection and interaction. Um, wow. and I have a lot to, I, I mean, listen, I have a hundred stories of my childhood that would, that would be interesting at some longer point. It's, it was a, <laughs> it was a great way to grow up. I absolutely loved it. I had an Irish dad and an Italian mom. And so you got a lot of energy and a lot of passion. Um, and, but, but seeing a uh, feast of famine and back to, uh, and then back to feast and then back to famine was, something that I truly appreciate and cherish. Yeah. I, I, I remember reading about that and I, I do have questions up, but I want to get to those later. How many siblings do you have? I have three brothers and a sister. Okay. I was wondering what did being part of such a big family teach you about human behavior relationships and, you know, resolving conflict and communication? Well, we were, boy, so so many lessons. Um, they're my best friends. So so we had um, we had a very 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 close um, ch- childhood. We were all and still are. Um, they're, they're the they're the ones I call when things go well, and they're the ones I call when I'm crying on my pillow. Um, so so we were definitely like born into each other, so to speak. Um, we also my 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 dad would always say these kind of funny sayings that are sticking in my head right now, but he always, you know, we always competed hard, but he didn't like comparison. He used to say comparison hurts, compete, compete, compete. So we competed, you know, but he wanted us to compete with ourselves, um, not with each other, but we, we were really athletic growing up. Um, my sister ended up, she was an all American, um, lacrosse, um, in high school and college. My older brother played uh, tennis at Holy Cross, D one tennis. And then the rest of us were just kind of high school athletes. We were almost always captains of all the teams we were on. Um, we were typically most of us, I think all of us were student body presidents. So we're those guys, you know, in high school. 
and um, and very active. So it was a it was funny. Like I as I as I lean into my children as a as a dad of three daughters, I I always think about you know my parents never asked me to see my report card. Like, mm-hmm. I can't I can't even imagine that. You know, actually, I, I had one, <laughs> one of my daughters. I, I stopped looking um, for another reason, but um, I never was asked to do homework. Like they never, it was, we were competing, you know, it, it, it was almost like we were, there was, and, and I'd say there was an expectation, but not really, you know, um, my folks did value education. As I said, both were PhDs. So they, they both yeah. actually, you know, I guess we appreciated that by osmosis, but there it's a family of entrepreneurs. And so that was different. So, you know, my, my dad, since I, I guess when I was six started his own company, He's a dean of students at a local college, Mount St. Mary College in Newburgh, and then started his own team building company. And so, you know, I, as young as I can remember, I was collating books for my dad on team teamwork and team building and leadership, which is, is, is funny to think about now. And then my mom operated two schools, um, one for kids with special needs and, and one kind of a matriculated school. I guess it was more like a charter school that you would think of today. Mm. And, um, and then my mom and dad partnered up and my, my mom became the star of the, what became a, um, a, a consulting business where they ended up consulting with Xerox and ADP and Texaco around the world. So pretty, pretty fun business and a, yeah. and a great, as a, you know, I, as a 13 year old, seeing your mother up in front of a room and back then, you know, come mid eighties, you're talking, it's all white males, you know, it's just a sales manager's session. And she is just wowing the room back and forth, back and forth, making them laugh, making them cry, teaching them lessons. And I remember my mom had made me go see her. I, I must have been acting up. I don't remember what I did, but I, I was a tough kid, um, the toughest of the five in terms of, of their parenting and what they had to deal with. But, but I remember <laughs> they tried everything. And back then it was like they, they took out sugar. They sent me to my room. They, like, they, they would try and take away anything. Um, but, uh, but I remember watching her and thinking like, I want to do that someday. And, um, so I had, I had, a, I had a wonderful, wonderful childhood and whatever, um, boy, we just competed and sports was our release. And it was a way to connect with my dad and my mom and each other. And, um, it was pretty special. Hmm. So I want to, I wonder how old were you when you experienced that transition from, you know, food stamps to country club? How old were your siblings? And as a byproduct of that sort of change, um, and, and this is something I'm very curious about because my dad is also a PhD. He happens to be a professor. Uh, what, what, how did the career advice that each of your siblings got c- contrast based on where your parents were at in terms of their life circumstances? All right. So this is a, a classic uh, Catholic family. Like we had five kids in six years. So, you know, we were effectively the same age um, growing up. Um, I was the second born, but most loved, or at least that's the way I, the story, and I'm sticking to it. And w- my my, I, I was on food stamps, I think, until age three. Um, my folks started making money when I was about thirteen or fourteen, so just hitting high school and a junior high, high school, um, and then um, lost it all when I was in college. So. Um, and what was the second part of your question? How I, I guess, you know, how did that affect um, the advice that your parents gave oh, you and your siblings? Because you're all so close together. Maybe it's very yeah, similar. The reason no, I asked that yeah. is because I saw what happened 
when, you know, my dad and, you know, like my sister and I are five years apart and my dad was building his career. My parents didn't have a lot of money. Um, and so my sister and I have these wildly different experiences growing up. Like I shared a bedroom with my sister until I was in the ninth grade. Like I didn't even have my own bedroom. Yeah. Um, and then she got a very different experience. She got to do a lot of things. That's that's my parents just had more money. Yeah. I love that. We, we actually, there were four of us. We had two bunk beds in a, in a nine by nine bedroom until I was 12. And then I had my own room. So it was, it was like, like we literally, it was like almost overnight. We had a, we went from that to a tennis court and a pool in our backyard. Like that's how stark it was. Like it was bizarre. Um, and yeah, my younger brother and sister definitely had it, had it better in those years, but then they got hit harder at the end because they were still in the house. So yes, they got, they got some, and and in terms of lessons, like I can't, I've got one daughter about to get ready, taking SATs and ACTs and trying to figure out where she's going to school. I never had a conversation with my parents about where I was applying to college. (laughs) And as far as career advice, uh, I mean, I remember I was at the, I was after I graduated from Villanova, I was bouncing at a, a bar called the Princeton in Avalon, New Jersey. And, my mom like set up an interview for me that I was not prepared to go on with ADP. And I was a total disastrous story. I, I, my car broke down on the way from the shore back. I borrowed my friend's clothes cause I left my clothes in the car that broke down. And I end up in a, in his Suzuki samurai, um, which didn't have doors or a roof. And uh, so I walked into this interview with clothes for someone the size of Andre the giant and hair looking like, like Don King. And this guy is saying, like, you're not ready for this interview. You, you're, you don't, you're not, you're not prepared. Anyone that would work here would have been at Nordstrom and got, and I said, hey, it's nine o'clock. I, you know, it was three in the morning. I was hitchhiking back here. This is a great story. And um, the guy's name was Paul Bugley. And I stayed in touch with him for, um, until he passed away about five years ago. And, uh, you know, I had a disastrous interview, my first interview. And that was my mom's biggest client. <laughs> <laughs> So how do you think that phone call went? So I ducked wow. for two days as I was back at the shore and uh, it didn't go particularly well. And my mom was just, I mean, she's the most wonderful, compassionate, um, lovely, supportive mom. I'd, I'd never heard her that nasty ever. Um, and uh, <laughs> and that was like, what a, what a great lesson though to get, right? So, I mean, get prepared. Like I haven't, I don't walk into meetings without being prepared now. I don't, I don't, yeah. anybody that walks in like that with me, I would throw them out as well, you know, but, um, but man, what a, and, and that kind of shook me back into real life. Like I went back to the shore and it just wasn't the same. I, mean, I was playing hoop twice a day. I was working at a bar. I was going out all the time. And literally two weeks later, I just moved back to my parents' house and I said like, Hey, it's time to, time to get on with this and get a gig. Mm-hmm. And my dad was the only career advice I've ever gotten from my dad, which was, um, he said, I, I walked downstairs. They had their you know, office downstairs and I walked downstairs. I said, okay, what, what's up? And he said, um, <laughs> he said, well, what's your plan, son? And I said, I don't know, dad. What, what do you think I should do? He said, I want you to go upstairs. I want you to write down 20 places you want to work. So I went upstairs, came back an hour later. I said, okay, here they are. He's like, okay, now you've got to get to somebody at each of those places. And this is before the internet. Like, there's no, you know, I'm like, but how? He said, you know enough people, start making phone calls. And that, that was the best advice I got from my dad. And the, the second one was when I, when I got hired at Madison Square Garden, I was president of Madison Square Garden and he grew up in Bayside, Queens, you know, and he, and his, he grew up, there were six of them, six siblings. They all stayed in the same bed every night. Okay. So he didn't come from a lot of means. 
And so, you know, I grew up in upstate New York. And so working at Madison Square Garden, the Knicks, I mean, the Rangers was like dream come true. And uh, I called him. I said, hey, dad. And he said, son, even you can't fall off of this floor. (laughs) 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 So I thought that was good, too. So so no, he he was like he loved I mean, coached me from when I was could walk in basketball um, and was always a huge supporter. But I didn't get like counseling like you have today and there wasn't access to information. And so so we kind of stumbled through it. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it, it's funny because, it, you know, I mean, Indian parents have the sort of doctor, lawyer, or engineer. We jokingly call, say the Indian parent motivational speeches, you can be any kind of doctor, lawyer, or engineer you want to be. <laughs> um, but the thing that I, I wonder about is, you know, CEO of an NBA team is not something that is, you know, you're going to find in, in a high school guidance counselor's recommendations of, okay, this is what you need to do to get that job. Uh, you know, I, it's not a linear trajectory. So I'm curious, like most of the people that I've interviewed uh, who have interest in careers, what what was the path to getting there? I mean, you know, yeah. it sounds like there's all this stuff. There has to have been all this stuff in between. Oh, for sure, and a lot, a lot of, a lot of bumps along the way. I, 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 um, I will say that three of my brothers are running companies right now. So we were, we were definitely trained to be running companies in some, some way. I don't think it was by design, but that's how we grew up thinking that we were going to do whatever we wanted. Can you imagine waking up every day and your dad telling you, telling you, you are incredible. You can do anything you put your mind to. There is no ceiling in what you can accomplish. Only you will decide limits of what you can accomplish. Can you imagine? That's how I grew up. Wow. Every single day. And so I believed it. I'm like, after a while, I'm like, yeah, that's true. I can. Maybe my, my mom used to say, you should be an astronaut. I was like, of course, you know, um, but that's how they, we were, we were taught to dream big. Um, although my, my folks were v- relatively parochial. Um, mm. And, um, and so, yeah, the journey, you know, they, the journey was fascinating. I got hired as a marketing assistant. I was making $15,000 a year living with seven guys in a three bedroom apartment. And I couldn't even afford lunch. You know, I was living in Hoboken, New Jersey and no vacation, um, no benefits, no overtime. And I spent my days fetching coffee and picking up dry cleaning and doing crap work. And I spent my nights picking up projects from the other departments and um, being fascinated by the business. I love, yeah. like, I love sport. Like if you, if you look for, everybody needs a kind of a, a find some stillness in their life. And, and for me, if you just bounce a basketball in the gym, it could be, five-year-old girls or NBA players. It's my, it's my piece. Like I, that yeah. is my Zen piece. Um, when, when, with the business though, that's not what I love about it. What I love about it is you have this incredible platform and I, I recognized it literally on my first day. You have this platform that brings people together and unifies. And if you mm-hmm. fast forward to today, boy, what a, what a great healing tool in terms of, of a divided nation on so many fronts. This is the yeah. one area of life that brings people together and has them like act like children. We scream, we root, we cheer. I was at a game last night, losing my mind in the game, up, standing up, <laughs> cheering, clapping, doubting, you know, and it's like, you know, because it's, you're part of that family, part of that community. But anyway, going back to my, my story, I, I was working for uh, this legendary guy at the time named John Spolstra, whose son now coaches the Miami Heat, Eric. Yep, I was going to ask you. I was wondering yeah. about that. And so I, Eric and I are about the same age. So I, I knew him when he was, he was playing and uh, he played college basketball. And it, just a wonderful, wonderful guy and an extraordinary coach. Um, but his dad was kind of the, the it guy in, in the sports marketing world. And, and the Nets are, were a, a B brand at best, maybe a C brand. Um, and he decided to hire 50-some-odd 22-year-olds and figure it out. And, and I, I got promoted from an assistant to a sales job because I was in on a Saturday fixing a copier. And you think about it. Yes. And he's like, what's your name again, kid? You know, what do you do here, kid? Can you come in my office, kid? You know? And when I went in there, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to sell sponsors. He's like, 
congratulations, you've just been promoted. Now I'm 22 years old. And he's like, take that office over there. And then he, he would take five of us out um, once a week for dinner and drinks. And you think about like the president of a team. And, and again, I always think about lessons and how they impact and influence who you are and, and how, you know, and, and when I spend time with my 22 year old reps now, I want them to know who I am because I knew who John was and he knew who I was. And that was important. Um, but that was my first big, uh, big promotion, if you will. <laughs> I mean, it's wow. so funny to think back on it. And, and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I mean, they had these old SIC books, which effectively big red thick books, probably six inches thick. And they listed every company in the, in the country. And I would just call them one by one. <laughs> I mean, not exactly target marketing uh, as we know these days. But anyway, um, and then um, I had had an internship um, at Advantage International, which was a sports marketing firm in college. And, and the guy that, who was my boss there um, suggested I call the, the, the Jeffrey Laurie, who had just bought the Philadelphia Eagles for a then record price of $188 million dollars. Um, which wow. insane. <laughs> like they literally said, yeah. crazy. What is he doing? Um, and it's now obviously worth mul- multiple billions. Um, and I cold called him about 50 times. And wow. um, yeah, he's, uh, you know, I, I wasn't a good salesman, but I, I could get anybody on the phone and carry on a conversation. And, um, and I did with his assistant. She knew who I was. I would call her every day. I said, Anna, I'm going to call you every single day for the rest of your life until you let me in to see him. And so about the 50th call, she put me on to Joe Banner, who's now a dear friend, who ended up being the president um, of the Eagles for a very long time, is now since retired, um, who hired me. So, um, yeah, so, and then I was the director of sales there. I was 24 years old, a director in the NFL. I, I couldn't direct myself to the bathroom and back. And I was, uh, I was like learning how to write a budget and write a business plan and had this incredible new boss come in, Len Kamarowski, who's now has been the CEO of the the Cleveland Cavaliers for the last 15 years or so, um, who taught me, um, you know, how to, how to be an executive. Um, and then I left there for Harvard business school, uh, which was an insane and wonderful experience. Um, there aren't too many kids from our lady of Lords high school going to Harvard business school. Let's put it that way. And, um, and that was, I was special. I, I mean, talk about learning how to dream big. I was around people who were smarter, more driven, had better experience. And, um, and I, lo- I loved every bit of it. I've, I've been a lifelong learner forever and loved learning. And that place I couldn't get enough of. Um, people with big dreams and big ideas and, and, um, and wonderful. And, and an attitude where you walked in, you said, hey, we're going to help each other every day. Every freaking day, somebody from the administration or professor would say to us, hey, when someone from this class calls, you answer it and you help them. That's what we do here. And it became like, this is a family. We're not, again, going back to that, you know, compete, don't compare. It's like, they, I could have worked 24 hours a day and I wouldn't have been as, you know, I wouldn't have done as well as half the kids there. Um, yeah. But that's not what it was about. It was about, uh, let's figure out how to learn together and let's go take on the world together. And what a, what a what a great lesson for companies, for teams, for colleges, for any, anybody. And I, I just love that, that mentality there. Um, and wow. then I came back and went back to the Eagles, which was probably my first mistake. I made plenty of mistakes, but that was probably my first mistake going back there because they thought I was the same kid who left. And I thought I should have been the CEO and they were more right than I was <laughs> convinced. 
I'd known everything. And, you know, but that's what HBS is. That It's the study of how to make you a CEO. You're just not yet, you know? Um, and then I left. It was the, the, the dot-com boom era. So I left to start a startup called Hoops TV with my dear friend, Seth Berger, who had just um, he had founded And One, the sneaker company. If you, if you know basketball, you might know And One. And, um, and I ran that into the ground. So I raised $15 million, some VCs, some strategics. And then I found myself out of luck, out of work, and out of money. And um, Seth, we, we were competing. We were the number two site behind NBA.com. So we had pretty regular interactions with David Stern, the former commissioner, and Adam Silver, the current commissioner. And, um, and so Seth called and said, you need to see this guy. And, and they hired me that week. And that, that kind of catapulted my career. I, I was in a group called Team Marketing and Business Operations. And it was David Stern's vision to create the McKinsey of sports. And so we were a consulting outfit that worked for the NBA on behalf of the teams and building best practices. So I got a chance to work across three leagues, the NBA, WNBA, and, and now G League, and help everybody from the receptionist to the president operate a more efficient and effective business. And what, I mean, that, is a, that was so much fun. Um, and eventually I, I grew up there and they, um, I ended up running the group and then they gave me a couple other, you know, the CRM group and NBA Canada and then the G league. And so I, I started, if it was, if it was a problem and, and struggling, um, they handed it to me. I, I love fixing things. I love turnarounds, um, create culture. Uh, I used to say, you know, kind of a bubble culture within the culture. And then I got to, I hit that age. I think I was 37 or 38 and I went to David Stern that who's, who's since passed away, unfortunately. Um, and said, hey, I'm ready to run something. And he said, what are you looking for? And I said, big turnaround, big city, uh, big challenge, but I want to run it. And he said, what about the Knicks? And so three weeks later, I was named president of Madison Square Garden Sports and running the Knicks and Rangers, Liberty, boxing, college basketball, tennis. And that was, that was, in, in, it was incredible. We, we spun the company out from, from Cablevision. And um, created a separately traded public company and then put a billion two into rebuilding it, the great transformation of Madison Square Garden, and then went out and, and paid for it and did these incredible deals um, and, and was the kind of with the who's who of New York City, which is mm-hmm. the center of the universe when it comes to the business and commerce. So that was, that was pretty wild and went through two turnarounds on the, on the court, which was fun. Um, Knicks and Rangers both really struggling when I got there. And, and when I left, uh, both consistent playoff teams. So, so pretty good. And then was, was fired from there. And that was a fascinating experience as well. Um, reading about yourself in the paper. I'd, I'd never had any like notoriety, if you will. Like not, you know, and that was the first time I, I, I was like wincing, saying like, I hope my kids don't read this, you know? Uh, <laughs> I remember that in the book. I, I do want to ask you about that in more detail. Yeah, we'll it, was, that. it was a fascinating time. Um, but I, again, I learned a ton. And then, and then I met Josh Harris and David Blitzer. And, you know, they had a really struggling franchise in a big market that was acting like a small market. And they wanted to change the face of sports and entertainment and grow a global company. And I was all game. I wanted to be around people I love, like, and respect. And I love, like, and respect them. Uh, they're, they're, yeah. they're good people. They're incredible deal makers. And and we've grown the business, you know, we've grown it five times the size in the last seven years and then some. So, so that, and, and on the court and on the ice, two really good stories as well. And we've had a lot of fun along the way. So it's been a, it's been a journey to get from, from there to here. Um, I've learned a ton of lessons along the way. 
Uh, but more importantly, I just, I don't know. I feel like I have friends in every corner of the world and, and more than anything else, that's what I cherish. Wow. Okay. So, so many questions come from this and, and we'll start getting into the book. Just one thing that I wonder, you, know, you had parents who instilled this very sort of, you know, clear message that you could be, do, or have anything you wanted. Um, and I had a, a mentor who worked with me for a really long time. And one thing that he always talked about and still talks about to this day, uh, I'll have to send you that conversation because it's one of our best interviews ever. He talked about this difference between probability and possibility. And, the, you know, we used ex- absurd examples, which I've cited before. So, you know, for example, as a scrawny Indian person, the probability that I'm going to go head to head with LeBron James, even in a pickup game, is pretty much zero. And I'm pretty sure my parents never told me something like you're going to be in the NBA because of that very thing. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, how you find that balance between, you know, like, where do you draw the line between, you know, delusional optimism and rational optimism, as I guess what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, great question. Let me think about it. I, I would say that I don't, I don't. Look, I, got, I have physical limitations too. I wanted to play in the NBA and I went to Villanova and tried out for the team and Doug West was squaring off in one of the tryouts. And I was like, wow, this guy's 6'6", 220. He's faster, stronger, smarter, better shooter, better handle, better defensively. This is not going to happen for me. You know, it was a great realization. But nonetheless, um, so physically for sure, in business, I'm not so sure that's the case. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm known from, if you, if you had my executives um, with a bright light in their face, every one of them would say that I set unrealistically high expectations. Um, and almost all of them would also tell you that we always hit them or exceed them. And so, and I had this expression, like, why not us? Like, why not you? Why not me? Why not? Like, what, what is making the greats of the greats so great? Like, what, what is it? Is it the unwavering belief in who you are and what you can accomplish? Is it the willingness to fail um, and be okay and trying to innovate? Is it like a, an, like a relentless pursuit of perfection? Is it like a, an unreasonably hard work ethic? You know, is it an understanding your priorities? I guess it's some combination of all that stuff, but, but in, in nowhere there, it's like, the, the smartest people don't win. So you're not really saddled by your IQ, right? Just yeah. if you just work hard, that doesn't work. Um, you know, so, but, I, but I do have this sense that, that if you, if you have the, the will, you're going to find a way. Um, the challenge is, is a lot of us grow up in an environment where we don't know what's possible or what's big enough. I think that's the, that's the crime. Uh, so I guess I would, to, to, to answer your question, I would err on the unreasonable, whatever your expression was, you know, enthusiasm yeah. or whatever. Like, I think that you should. I want people to stretch and grow and I want them to take chances and I want them to fail and fall and, and get up and try again. Um, and I want them to be leaders. And, and that's what I'm trying to develop here. I, I, all my whole life, I've been trying to, I want to consider myself a leader of leaders. I want, I what's you know, everybody needs something to get them out of bed in the morning. And I've got two things. And one is like, I hope to develop the next great generation of leaders in this business. And I want to leave the world better than I found it. And so, you know, and, and those, that those are two 
loaded things that any cynic in the world would be like, oh, of course, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, keep being cynical. I'm going to keep working. Um, and, and I think that, I don't know, I wouldn't want to put a ceiling on anybody, especially kids. Like I, yeah, you know, I just, I have this, this, my older daughter, who's just this wonderful, wonderful, incredibly gifted soul with people did awful in school. And I told you, like, my parents never looked at my report card. And I, I made a joke that, well, I, I, I don't want with my one. My one was doing so badly her freshman year. And she came to me, she said, you're putting so much pressure on me. I said, me? I don't care what you, how you do in school. And I said, the only thing I give a crap about is how hard you work. I said, that's the only thing that matters to me. And I, I think, you know, my view on our education system for, for people like Alexa, who's my daughter's name, is like, she is not cut out to sit in a math class. Okay. It's never going to happen. Um, and what happened to her? And by the way, she's, she won national art awards and I'm like, okay, you know, let's, let's, let's feed the beast a little bit. I know you need a foundation in math, but do we really need to be taking calculus your junior year? Really? So now she goes off to college and she thinks she's not smart. I'm like, now that that's a problem because you can define smart in so many different ways. And, um, and so I, I don't know, I, I wouldn't, I guess I, I err on the side of, I want people to believe and dream, um, and then be, be cognizant enough to understand the, the kind of work that it takes to be successful. I have yet to meet a person in the world who ha- who is successful, who hasn't worked their tail off. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's what I want. That's what I want to see that from my kids. I want them to be hardworking. That's a core value of what we are. I was tell, I was telling them, you weren't born with any gifts. Can't sing. You can't dance. Can't write. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that good looking, you know, but I said, but, but I do want them to have that, that hardcore work. And I do want them to believe they can, they can take on the world. And by yeah. the way, that same daughter, she got a three, eight last semester and, and read me, uh, her Dean's list letter word for word. And I thought it was the cutest thing. Here's a kid who, you know, it's like she hadn't, you could take all her GPAs from her entire high school and they wouldn't add it up to three, eight, you know? And here mm-hmm. she is like, yeah. so proud. I'm like, good for you. You found your zone. You know, you're in, cause yeah. she's now at a point where she's taking classes in her major that she's passionate about and she's into it. And I'm like, good for you, kid. And, um, and I think I want more of those moments for everybody. You know, I want people to be confident and walk through the walk through life confidently um, and I think that's some of the secret sauce that's really, really hard to teach and harder to find. Uh, wow. Well, I, I think that that makes a perfect segue to talking specifically about the book. What of all the things you could do? I mean, you're a CEO of an NBA team. I'm sure you're a pretty busy guy. Like, why write a book? Like, what of all the th- what motivated you to want to do this? Yeah, great question. Again, um, you're obviously pretty good at this. Um, so my um, my best friend in the world. Will Carden took his own life a couple of years ago um, and with shotgun and he was suffering from depression and he's got five amazing kids and this incredible wife and a successful guy and could not, could not get through it. Like he could not beat the beast and he fought it. He fought it for 15 years of hardcore depression in and out of facilities, in and out of medication, all that kind of stuff. And I spoke at his funeral um, and I, I grieved. I didn't even know what grief, I didn't, I've never grieved before. Um, I didn't know what grief was and I couldn't focus. I was, I'd be in a meeting and somebody would say something completely unrelated. I would just get out and walk out of the room and start crying. And so I was struggling 
and started to write as my own way to heal and started to talk to friends of mine and ask them. And, and you just had this notion that everything is okay everywhere else. You know, you see a, a, a picture on Instagram or you see this holiday card that comes to your house. You're like, wow, that family, boy, they have it all. Or wow, that's, that's amazing. Or, or that CEO, boy, how smooth and easy was that ride? Oh, he must be so lucky. And you look at life and it's just not the way life works. Life is messy, you know? And what I found when I was talking to my friends was they had stories that were as messy or more messy than mine. And it gave me peace and comfort in a strange, strange way. And so I started to write and I had some of my friends write. And um, a good friend of mine, Randall Wright, said, you, just, you need to publish this. Like, this can actually help people. And he said, like, you're talking about leading leaders. You're talking about helping build the next generation. He's like, what if you can touch somebody? Like, what if you can make an impact? What if you, what you do actually makes, it, makes a difference? And so, um, so I just went through the process. I actually, I hired a writer, Michelle Bender, who's amazing, um, because uh, my agent, Jan Miller, said something really funny when I went, was talking to her. She said, you're a book. This is not a book, which I thought was really, really funny and really humbling. <laughs> <laughs> and so she's like, I like you. I like what's in there, but we got to get what's in there on here. You know, so it was, it was really funny. So I, I, got, I got real help, um, which was great. And then... Um, and then the folks at St. Martin's, um, Tim Bartley, I think he's the best editor in the world, um, made sense out of it. And, and, and it allowed me in my voice to, you know, again, I told you, I want to I want to make a dent on the world a little bit. And, and hopefully this does. Yeah. Well, let's get into this. I think to be it's funny because my absolute favorite parts of the book were the ones where you wrote about your daughter. And I, I want to start at the the very beginning of this because um, this, this raised a question for me because you start out with this. Um, story of, of being, you know, with your daughter at uh, camp and you, t you know, say these three things to her that all of them really struck me. You said friends are terrific, but they come and go in your life. Boyfriends are fleeting. Online connections are just that. But our family of five is forever. Love more, lean in, lean on and cherish our bonds. Focus on how you can contribute as well as draw strengths from these connections. Um, and then the other thing you tell her is no matter what it is, how tough it gets or how deep you are in that valley, know that it will always be okay you will always be okay. It will get better. The sun will come up the next day. You have to know that it will always be okay. And then third, you said, you can count on me. You can call me. You can text me, FaceTime me, and I'll be there. I'm here for you. I hope to be a sense of comfort, a reality check, a loving shoulder, a support system, and the person who you can call when you need to laugh or cry. I will listen. I will not judge. I will only love. You're never alone. I love you forever in a day. And I think the reason that I actually highlighted that, and it's the first question I chose to ask you about the book, um, is because I have a question that nobody has been able to answer for me, but given this relationship with your daughter, maybe you can. Um, I've always wondered what it is, because my sister and my dad are incredibly tight. Like, she calls him every day. I hit a roadblock with him in about 15 minutes. I'm like, all right, dad, I got to go. <laughs> you know, and But for them, it's this bond where... You, I don't know if you've ever seen the meet, the movie Meet Joe Black, but uh, cool. the older sister describes the younger sister as, you know, when she walks into a room, your eyes light up. The whole, the, the entire mood of the room changes. And that is my dad and my sister in a nutshell. And just based on the way that you wrote about your daughter, I am wondering, what is it that leads to that kind of a bond, you know, between fathers and daughters? Uh, like, why is that so powerful? I love that question. Um and I, I don't, I'm not going to be able to answer the question. I can tell you though, that there is such a special bond between fathers and daughters. And, um, and I have a very, very different relationship with each of my daughters and each of them are very, very special in terms of the relationships. Um, 
But my my simple lesson is I try to meet them where they are. Um, and I think dads have the ability to do that um, in a different way than moms do. Um, moms oftentimes play the disciplinary role and they oftentimes they play the operational role in the house. And yeah. so dads, at least traditionally, have been free. You know, we, we're, we're free to, to take the good stuff, if you will, to, to cuddle up when they're crying, you know, instead of make them cry. To uh, to be to be a, a support system or or, or a listen you know somewhere to to listen to them, um, but I I man that relationship is just it's as pure and special as you can possibly get and and I I, I remember my wife saying to me hey you want to spend time with your kids oh, no you want them to play basketball spend time with them. all they want to do is spend time with you and I listen I work hundred nights a, a year. I'm out early, out, out late. You know, the pandemic's been like the best blessing for me ever. I'm home. I'm home for family. I didn't even know what family dinner was for 25 years. And now I'm home all the time. It's fantastic. And so, but, but I am trying to get one-on-one time with them, whether that's driving them to basketball practice or sitting up and watching a, a 100, which I am with my 14-year-old daughter, some dark show on Netflix, which is fantastic. But I can't believe I'm watching it with my 14-year-old daughter. Um, and um or just chatting on the phone my oldest is is interning with the utah jazz right now which is so cool so we can actually talk about business so i (laughs) i'm I'm just finding them i try to meet them where they are and i love them no matter what and they know that i love them um yeah but boy oh boy that's such a good question i have no idea what the answer is but what a gift that it that it exists yeah. It, well, like I said, I think those were the things that, that having a younger sister who has, you know, this bond with my dad, those are the ones that, that struck me the most. In fact, you mentioned, you know, you're not being home made me want to ask you about this. And I probably think this is my favorite quote from the entire book. You said of the iconic sports franchises, NBA, NHL, esports, et cetera, under my supervision, there's no team I take more seriously than the Rocky Crushers, at least a seventh grade <laughs> basketball team. I even skipped out on NBA All-Star Weekend in Chicago a day early so I could coach the team. Like, I mean, you know, you're the CEO of an NBA team and that, you know, yet your daughter's seventh grade basketball team is a bigger priority, which I appreciate that so much. Like it just, that really touched me. That was my favorite line in the entire book. What's informed your philosophy of choosing to, you know, prioritize your daughter's seventh grade basketball team over the NBA where you're the CEO of the damn team. Yeah, no, it's such a good question. I do. I, I've coached, um, my daughters now for 15 years and, until they get to high school and then they're, they're free to do their thing, either play or not play. But, um, but until then they have a, they have a dad who will coach them. And so I'll, I'll bounce out of the office. I'll go late back to games. I'll do anything I can to make practice and make games with them. And, um, and we're never very good. Like we, you know, it's, it's never, I always say, get your friends. I want to know your friends. And so this is a way, like, can you imagine having like, you know, as a dad, as your girls get older, like you just don't have time. Like we wake up, there's chaos in the morning. I go to work, they go to school. They have after school sports or some activity. I get home. We rush through dinner. If I'm even home until midnight and then they have homework. So like, how much time do you have? Like, do you get an hour a day? Do you get two hours a day? Do you get three hours a week? of real time. And this kind of forces time. And I, I always say like, I'll know, I know my daughters if I know their friends. And so this was a way to get them together and, and uh, spend quality time with them. Um, and boy, I think sports are the best teacher and in particular for girls. Um, I think boys have had the competitive advantage for the last hundred years on youth sports yeah. and, and girls are certainly catching up now, but what you learn 
to lead and to follow and to win and to lose and to sacrifice for others and to be a good teammate. And you understand what a bad teammate is because you see it, you know, and you see people and, and you see their parents and how they interact awkwardly with the referees or the coaches. And as a kid, you're taking all this in and it's formulating who you're going to be as a mom and it's who you're going to be as an executive and it's who you're going to be as a leader and all this stuff. And, and I get to spend time with them every week being part of that and helping like formulate those little things. And, and yes, we talk about what your favorite ice cream is and, and what's your favorite place to go to vacation is as much as we talk about switching from a zone to a man to man. I will say, like I always say the first practice we sit, we sit on, in the center of the court in a circle and we talk and we get to know each other. And I, I will tell you like all my, my view of success always is how many of the young ladies come back and play the following year. And they almost mm. always come back and play. And because yeah. I want them to love each other, I want them to fall in love with basketball. I want them to appreciate what competition means. And I could give a crap if you can drain an 18 foot jumper with somebody in your face. I actually don't care, but I do want to see you give your all every single possession, especially on defense and everybody can give effort. And I love that. I love the lessons. The lessons are so applicable to life and family and relationships and, and how I go, you know, I, I, I will say like, um, I, I've had so many experiences like that. I, I remember coming home and look, you need people in your life. I'm sure you have someone in your life that tells you the truth. Mm-hmm. And my kids, my daughters will tell me the truth. <laughs> Sometimes it's not great. My wife always tells me the truth. I remember I was coming home <laughs> one day. I think this is in the book, um, but I was coming home one day and we'd lost again. And I was at in New York and all the teams were rebuilding. I was all grouchy and being difficult. My wife said, you know, it's like, is this you really? And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, is this your, is this who you're going to be? I'm like, what? You just lost by 20 points. She's like, okay, so how many games are you going to lose this year? And I was like, I don't know, a hundred. It's like, okay, so one out of every three days, you're going to, you're going to come here, come home and be in a bad mood. She's like, this doesn't work for me. And I was like, okay. She's like, and it's not going to work for the girls. I was like, all right. So and I was like, so she's like, yeah. It's like, and it walked away. And I was like, huh, I got to figure this out. And so I only tell you that story because sure, I have to figure it out. Like I have to then decompress and have like my own systems to come in the house and be fresh and be clean. Um, when you walk in that, that gym and you're coaching these gals, I better be fresh. I better be present. I better be where my feet are. A hundred percent. I have to be there. And, um, and they know it and they know what I am. There's a, there's a, like, and, and you have to meet them where they are, just like your kids. I remember, like, in this practice, I had this one gal, cute little girl, and she was um, doing a little TikTok dance. And I was like, yo, hey, we're trying to learn an inbounds play. We haven't scored in two weeks, you know? And she's doing TikTok. I was like, okay, you want to do a TikTok dance? So we did a TikTok dance together. Everyone made a video. And it was <laughs> all, all over the World Wide Web for everyone to see. And because um, I'm meeting them where they are. I'm, I'm with them. You know, and, and I'm their coach and I'm there to coach them about boys or school or their mom or their dad or whatever, you know, I'm there. And, and we all need people in our lives that are outside of our direct line to help us. And, and that's been a gift, a gift beyond measure. Wow. So 
this is another question I had. You know, you shared the experience, you know, both with me and in the book about, you know, going from being on food stamps to being extremely well off to being, you know, poor again. And now I, you know, I'd assume the CEO of an NBA team is fairly well compensated, uh, which, which makes me wonder, you know, having had that experience uh, in your own life, how do you make sure your daughters don't overlook the fact that they're, you know, growing up in, in relatively privileged circumstances yeah. uh, compared to most people? Because I'm guessing many of the players on your teams probably came from far worse backgrounds than your daughters do. And and so how do you instill that sense of, you know, humility in them to make them understand that, hey, you know, this is not normal? Yes. No, it's definitely not normal. Um, and I, I remind them of that. And um, I'm very fortunate. Like my wife, I remember I, um, you know, in sports, it's step function increases in pay. Like you don't make a lot of money. And then all of a sudden you get a big step function and you're like, wow, it's a good living. And then it step functions up. And I remember I was at the NBA and I was making a good living by anybody's standards. And um, my, my boss had left to go run the Hawks and the Thrashers in Atlanta. And, um, and I'd been given an indication by the commissioner that I was going to be his replacement. And, um, and I s- said to my wife, I was like, I think I'm going to get a promotion and I think I'm going to get a raise. She's like, ah, oh, that's awesome. I was like, yeah, that was it. You know, and then I went to work and I'm sitting with David Stern and Adam Silver and he's, he was a really tough um, guy. He's very abrupt and nasty and cursed and threatened and all that kind of stuff. And so he was like promoting me, but yelling at me at the same time, which was kind of awesome. And he's, and he says like, you know, and do you know how much you're going to make? And I was like, uh, no, he's like, do you have any other questions? I was like, yeah. And I wanted to hire a couple people and he said, fine. And then he says, um, he's continuing to, to give me a, a tough time. And he said, well, well, what are you, what, what are you asking for? And I was just like, whatever, I, whatever you think is fair, you know? And I walked out of the room. And so he called me later that afternoon and told me what I'd be making, which was about double what I was making the time before, which was still for me at the time, like more money than I'd ever thought I'd make in my life. Okay. So here I am in this cool job, living the dream. I have a great family. I'm happily married. Life's good. You know? And, and then I, I get this, um, you know, promotion and pay raise. And I went home to my wife and I said, um, Lisa, um, I got a raise. I'm going to be making X. And she says, she looks me dead in the eye and she's like, can you imagine all the people we can help? And I thought, definitely married the right woman. And it's such, to me, like the most powerfully intense moment where you understand that my kids are going to be fine. You know, they have a really grounded house. Like, we get up on Saturday and we do chores. We go serve people who need to be served. Um, they understand what their obligation is. And they also understand that this is not theirs. And I tell them that all the time. You know, this is, this is not, you haven't earned anything, you know? Um, and so I think the kids are, are grounded. And I, I, I know that they understand that they're blessed. They also understand what the world looks like. I've had a daughter serve in an orphanage in Zambia um, and sleep on a dirt floor in a tent, a little Barbie doll out in the middle of, of the bush sleeping in a tent. I've had a daughter work in a Syrian refugee camp in Athens, which wow. she described as, and I quote, that extremely dangerous, but not as bad as the subway to my hostel. <laughs> I have, uh, like, oh boy, I'm not going down as dad of the year. I have a daughter this year. We're going together to Zambia to uh, build a school. 
I'm sorry, not Zambia, um, Zimbabwe to build a school. And, um, and so for us, um, I think our girls kind of get it. And, and it, it, look, I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to come off as like, I'm the perfect dad or, or everything's great and everything's perfect. I, I struggle. Okay. My girls struggle. My wife, we struggle. Like we are, we are the classic, um, American family. You know, we, we do the best we can with what we have. Um, we love each other a lot. We understand the power of family. We understand the blessings we have. We try to give more than we take. And, um, but yeah, we're, we talk about this stuff a lot as a family. And, um, and I feel like Lisa's the big anchor on that one. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah. Well, 
I, I want to get to my my specific NBA related questions. Like I said, I'm the weirdo who plays sports video games religiously, but couldn't tell you most of what's going on in any major sport at any given time. Like I am surprisingly knowledgeable about the NBA only because 2K commentary basically is like an encyclopedia of random facts that you get to hear while you're playing the game. Um, but one of the things that you said in the book is that being at the top comes with pressure, along with the assumption that the best player on the field already has all the answers, will be perfect in his shots and passes, and will score the game-winning goal with no time on the clock, i.e. robotic mm-hmm. perfection. Star athletes internalize these demands and often form cold, hard walls and barriers between themselves and their teammates, coaches, and loved ones. Um, and one thing I, I wonder, so I've, I've had a um, NFL player who was here and you know, one of the things I asked him was, you know, why does somebody like Tom Brady become Tom Brady? Uh, and, you know, the rest of the people in the NFL, most of them, we don't even know who they are. You know, like I couldn't tell you any single name of a, a defensive lineman or a tackle on any team because um, they're pretty anonymous in, in the, the grand scheme of things. And I, I very distinctly remember that scene from any given Sunday where Lawrence Taylor is talking to Jamie Foxx and he mentions all these star athletes. He's like, for every one of them, there's a million people you never heard of. And so I wonder, you know, you've what you've been part of a team. And, and I, I guess the example I'll use is, is, you know, Iverson, because he's the one who drives me crazy on 2K since I can't seem to slow him down. Uh, <laughs> what I wonder is, why does somebody like Allen Iverson end up in his circumstances? And why does and why do you, like how do you get a, an Allen Iverson with this insane talent? And then how do you get a Michael Jordan? Well, it's wildly different life outcomes. Like what causes that? Huh? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, they grew up in very different circumstances. I mean, Alan was, you know, born to a 15 year old single mom in Hampton Roads, Virginia, in a really difficult time. And then, you know, ended up in a really awful racial incident where he ended up, he would argue, um, um, maybe many might, um, unjustly put in jail. Um, so his life experience was really hard. Um, and, people in that community wrapped their arms around him and and saved him, if you will. Um, and, and one of those saviors became John Thompson, who was a former coach of Georgetown University, who brought him in. Um, but but Alan, there are a lot of things that people don't know about him. I happen to, to know him fairly well and love him. I mean, I love him for the person he is and the person he aspires to be. Um, he was taking care of 38 families. 38 families wow. at his peak. And you know why he was taking care of them? Because they took care of him. And I love that. And I, I wish some of the decisions he made um, were different. And I'm sure he wishes that as well. But boy, oh boy, here, here's a, a person who wears his heart on his sleeve. Um, he takes care of those he loves. Um, he is as passionate as anyone you'll ever meet and appreciative of the, the moment in time that he had. Um, and that, that is very different from Michael Jordan, you know, and Michael Jordan one, you know, grew up in a nice, nice family and had a, a really good lifestyle growing up and played at, you know, UNC and was drafted third overall and, and life got good. And he, they both have, I'll tell you what they have in common. They both have like an insatiable appetite to compete and a crazy drive to win. And, um, and they, they, and you know, to be an elite, elite person at any level, I, I think it's, I think you have to make trade offs. And I think that's the case in business or in your faith or in the community or as an athlete. 
is like life is about trade-offs. And they both made different trade-offs for different reasons at different times and got different outcomes. Um, I don't yeah. think either of them would, would trade what they did or how they did it. Um, and that's what I appreciate about both of them. I will yeah. say that being an athlete, I'm not one, as you know, but being around a lot of them, it's hard. And I wouldn't aspire now, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't aspire to being a pro athlete. I, it's too hard. Um, you don't know. It's very, very difficult in terms of who to trust. Um, you know, relationships are somewhat fleeting. And, you know, you peak by the time you're 28. And, you know, I, I, I look at Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett made 98% of his wealth after the time he was 65. That's a good way wow. to peak too. Yeah. Um, so, so I don't know. I think it's, I think it's a hard life they live. Um, I agree with the one in a million, one, you know, and a million, you don't, it might be 10 million, you don't, or 20 million or a hundred million. You don't. Um, but, but I, I think that lifestyle is really, really hard. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that makes a, a perfect segue to the next question I had. You, you know, like, I think those of us who are on the outside, we look at, you know, sort of, uh, watching these star athletes and we think they live these incredibly glamorous lives. They're all well off, you know, after reading Andrea Godala's biography, and then there was another, um, book that was written by a sports journalist called $40 million slaves. Uh, you know, and they both talked, you know, explicitly about race in the NBA, which I am curious, like, you know, how all of that has affected you guys and like what impact all of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has had on both the league and, and individual athletes. Um, but I think one of the things I distinctly remember was the Jeremy Lin documentary where he had mentioned, it, it was an interview he did on a podcast where he said, you know, the fantasy and the reality are really different. You know, you're He's like, it's a high paid job, but it's a job just like any other job. And your ass is on the line every single night. And there's always the possibility you're going to lose their job. So, so two questions come from that. One is, you know, what's the, what's the difference between the fantasy people have about this life and the reality? And, you know, what is it like, what is it that enables these guys to perform at the level that they do and do it, you know, night after night after night? Yeah, the first part is the only thing we see is the gladiator moment. Like that's the only thing we see. We see them walk on the court as fans, and and be cheered or booed. Um, and we what we don't see is the thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of work, work on their bodies, work on what they eat, how they take care of themselves, working on their craft. Like we don't see it. I see it, by the way. It's unbelievable um, how hard they work. I think the elite, elite guys, they have a, a drive. They have all the physical tools. They have all the mental tools. And they have an insatiable appetite to compete. And so you have those three things are, are what happens when, when – and they stay healthy. So, um, But I, I, I wish people could really see how hard Joel Embiid works or Ben Simmons works or Jack Hughes works or Nico Hesha works. I mean it's – this is a total, complete – commitment and think about what you're giving up you're giving up any sort of private life right a anything you do you go out to a restaurant you're getting photographed and, and put on tmz um you know anyone you date is public fodder um any mistake you make or you think about the last time you were frustrated at work or you said the wrong thing to a friend or you had a bad breakup like you don't want that on espn on sports center and they have it and it's hard. It is really, 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 really hard. Um, 
So, um, but I, 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 like I said, I, I don't envy the lifestyle. I, I admire them. Um, and I, I do, you know, I, what, what I am a little bit maniacal about is, and what I talk to them about is making sure that they're protecting themselves financially too. Mm-hmm. So they have to figure out who to trust in their life and, and they've got to save their money. And when you're, when you're, when you're peak, your peak economic, you know, economic windfall is between 20 and 28. I mean, think about yourself when you're 20 years old. Like, could you have handled, <laughs> could you have handled making $5 million a year? No, if, if I had that much money, I, I would have absolutely squandered it. And, uh, you know, when you said that, it reminded me of this podcast that uh, Charles Barkley was on with Dr. Phil. And I don't remember which player it was. It was a younger player on the team with him. And no, somebody had scolded him. It was one of the older guys on the team. Because uh, he bought something like two or three cars, you know, right when he started playing. And the older guy was like, you're an idiot. What are you doing? And he said, this is actually one of the reasons a lot of these guys make all this money, but they end up leaving broke because they are just caught up in the lifestyle. Yeah, I don't know. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about that. There are a lot that that end up that way. The problem is they're just they're young and they have time. And those are two bad those are two bad things. And if, if I were 20 years old and you gave me $5 million a year, I wouldn't understand taxes, of course. I wouldn't have understood yeah. like, that this is going to end ever, of course, because I was immortal when I was 20. I wasn't thinking about retirement. You know, now these guys, these guys come in, they're, they're smart. They're brands. It's, it's different. They, and the, especially the elite guys, the Ben Simmons, the Joel Embiid's, they have, they have, com- you know, they have a complete understanding of their, their brands and how they manage their money and they have people around them and, and that's great. So for the elite guys, they're, they're most of them are, are in really good hands. It's the guys that come in and, and for anyone else making a million dollars a year should be enough. You do that five years in a row and you should be good to go. Um, it just, but you know, as I say, you know, wealth is not about what you earn is about what you save. And, and so, you know, our counsel is to save 50% of their salaries and get them to an, a, a financial advisor before it hits their check. And then they can go have fun with whatever else they, they make. And, and in many cases, they'll, like, they'll never know the difference. And then they'll wake up yeah. when they're 30 and 40 and 50 and have plenty of money for the rest of their lives and their family's life. You know, but you get in that. But it's hard. It's hard. You've got people tugging on you left and right. You're not sure who to trust. Everybody has an idea. Um, everybody wants to be your friend. Uh, there's a ton, a ton of pressure. But I, I think the, the, new, the players union has been great, um, at least the NBA and NHL in, in terms of education. And, and I've seen a huge movement from when I came into this league in the early nineties to now in terms of players, them managing their brands, managing their money, managing relationships. It's, it's a, it's a whole nother world. It's been, been, been yeah. great progress more to go, of course, but a good progress. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, it's funny you say that. Cause I, I would, the question I had next was sort of um, about the contrast sort of pre-internet, pre-social media uh, versus now. Cause one of the things you say is in a world dominated by instant gratification and obsessed by the spotlight of now trust the process is a commitment. You'll keep a long-term view at the forefront of your planning and decision-making. This has implications far beyond basketball. And the reason that struck me in particular was because you, you now have a world, particularly for these young athletes, right. Who basically grew up watching, you know, people that you, you've worked with, like, you know, they saw the early nineties and they've come into a world with Instagram and Twitter and, and, you know, all this stuff that they didn't have before. Like effectively, like you said, they're their own brand. And Cal Newport, who was a guest here, who wrote a book called Digital Minimalism, Minimalism another one called Deep Work, had, you know, done some work with NBA teams. And one of the things that he told me that I just found, you know, really interesting was he said when people tweeted the night before the game, their performance actually suffered. And so I wonder, you know, 
one, what's been the contrast <clears throat> from, you know, pre-internet when you see these guys come in to now? Uh, and how do they not, you know, sort of lose their sense of drive or get caught up in all this instant gratification? It's, um, yeah, I'm not sure it's instant gratification that's the issue. I, I think that there's so much negative pressure out in the world to stand out that people, you know, we have seven and a half billion media members now and the way they get attention is to be critical. And, and I, again, I go back to my 20 year old self and what if I got 5,000 in my era, I guess it would have been handwritten notes, but now it's, it's tweets saying how terrible I was, how awful I was, that I couldn't shoot. I couldn't pass, should be traded, suck. I'm the worst person of all time. Don't belong in a city. Like that's what's happening. And so now you're 20 years old and you have 5,000 people and you read every single one of them because you're 20 and you can't help yourself. And, and having had a little bit of hate tweets come my way, I will tell you like as a much older, much more mature, much more secure person, just because of my age and experience, it hit me and hurt me. And I always think about like, okay, what is, if fans only knew the impact that they were having when they were nasty with these kids, and that's what they are when they come in the league. I know they grow into men, but at 20 years old, you're still a kid. Um, I think it's really, really difficult. And I I couldn't imagine when I say how difficult it is to be a a star, you know, Um, I think it's hard. And I think if fans ever knew the impact that it's their virtual boo, what that has on players and their psyches. And we've seen it. We've seen players come out um, and talk about, the, the mental mental illness they've had or the mental fragility they've had playing in this league. And I think a lot of that has to do with social media. And you know what? Yeah. We're seeing that in our teens too. So, you know, forget about athletes. It's, it's happening in junior high. Like levels of depression are up. Levels of anxiety are up. Like where do you think that's coming from? Like that is yeah. the, I need to be perfect. I need to be first. I need to be liked. I need to have everything go well. Or reading something that doesn't feel good. Or you're feeling like you're excluded. Well, that, that like welcome to real life. Um, and I think they're they're in a fishbowl, and I think it's a very, very, very difficult thing. And if I if if if, if I had a son and, and he was playing in the NBA or a daughter playing the WNBA, I'd tell him to shut it down, just shut yeah. down social media and go have some fun. Be you, be present, yeah. be where your feet are, and let's go. You know, more, it's funny you say that. It's that. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I'll send you the article. Cal Newport wrote an article on his blog about Bryce Harper, the baseball player. Um, And I don't know anything about baseball, but uh, I just remember this article very distinctly because he said, you know, Bryce Harper doesn't use social media. And he apparently landed a $430 million contract. And I was like, that's the upside of not using social media that much. I think that, you know, that's a pretty strong case. Right. Yeah, we have some of our players now that if you ask them, like, you know, we have some that are building big brands on social media, and that, that's wonderful too. And others yeah. that don't have an interest to it and actually have someone doing it for them so they don't have, they're not saddled with it. So they're not saddled with someone saying, you can't shoot, you can't jump, you can't guard, or whatever it is. <laughs> you know? But it's like, it's too much. And it's not like yeah. nicely said. It is, I mean, it is a, is a bastion of hate that doesn't belong in this world. 
Totally. Yeah, it's funny because we always so you know, we have certain players that we struggle with on 2K. For some reason, me and my roommate really cannot get Chris Paul to shoot three pointers. And I'm like, wait a minute, Chris Paul is a lights out three point shooter. It's like maybe we should tweet him and ask him, like, is there a reason we're not able to make threes with you on 2K? <laughs> like, maybe you'll have an answer. Uh, but this is a, a, a question out of morbid curiosity. So I my ongoing joke is always that the only reason I'd ever need a billion dollars is to buy an NBA team. And one of my, my mentors said, okay, tell me something like what would buying an NBA team do for you? Like what will that actually give you? And I was like, courtside seats. He's like, you don't need a billion dollars for that. I'm sure you can find an easy, you know, cheaper way. But with that in mind, like you, I'm guessing the, the people who you report to, I'm guessing your bosses are the owners of the team. What actually enables somebody to get to a level where they can buy an NBA team? Yeah. First of all, I, I hate the word owner. It's just a pet peeve of mine just because it has such, such negative connotations um, when you're talking about people. So I was just managing general partners or managing partners for whatever it's worth. Um, but yes, what they're both private equity guys, um, Josh Harris and David Blitzer, um, both self-made. One was at um, one of the co-founders of Apollo, Josh Harris, and one is one of the early, early guys at Blackstone. Um, they are considered some of the greatest deal makers in the world. And private equity is, um, has been a really good business, apparently, over the last 20 or 30 years. So, yeah, so they've, they, and they, they came in um, before the Steve Ballmer purchase of the Clippers for over $2 billion, which really catapulted the prices. So they got in at a really, at least by today's standards, a really reasonable number and have done really, really well, well with the business. But yeah, no, it's, it's, you have to be, you have to have a B in front of your wealth to to be a, a control partner in one of these businesses now um but boy what a room like you walk yeah. into the you know i've been in the nba boardroom now for boy um 18 years and i've been in the nhl one for 12 years and i mean it's everyone you'd want to to be or do business with you know from ted leonsis to mark cuban to jim dolan to joe lakeup i mean these are the, the titan steve bomber titans of the industry dan gilbert I mean, you have like the, the who's who of, of the country in a room and they're your partners. And, uh, and so that's, that's, uh, and, and, and there's scarcity, you know, there are only 30 yeah. teams, you know, and I think that that drives a lot of the value. Totally. Well, it's funny because I remember even Mark Cuban said in an interview with Chase Jarvis on creative live, he said, you can become a millionaire through hard work. He said, becoming a billionaire involves a bit of luck. Yeah, Mark is very humble. Um, he he uh, happened to uh, get, got to know him fairly well over the years, and I mean he's brilliant. And so he would always, say, you know, when people would give him a hard time when he was first in the league, he's like, "Yeah, no, I, I know I was just lucky." Like that guy's never been lucky in his life. He is brilliant and hardworking and passionate and compassionate, and has an incredible eye for brand. And he's the best, has the best PR mind on issues of anyone I've ever met in my life. But I, I, I appreciate what he's saying. And there's a degree of luck that happens to all of us. But there's also people who make their luck. And, and he seems to be one yeah. of those guys, if you want to couch it as lucky, he's a guy who's made, made a lot of luck for himself. And I, I don't think it's an accident. And they're, they're, look, would I have loved for my father to be a billionaire and pass me down money? Yes, I would have. He, d- he died broke, unfortunately. But however, if he did and he passed me a billion dollars, I would buy an NBA team for sure. Or an <laughs> I I'd take either of these sports. I really do love them, and and yeah. I think and it is fun. And you should tell your mentor, or whoever told you uh, that you can buy courtside seats. It's much better than that. 
you were on the inside yeah, I, of something so special and spectacular and you're around the greatest athletes and performers in the world and you have this incredible platform to get out and do good and drive change in the community it is it's i tell you what it is wonderful yeah, that, that's that's literally my sort of, you know, crazy, ridiculous out there goal is to, to basically own an NBA team. I like that. Um, you can hire me, by so, the way. Love to, love to do yeah, it. Yeah. Oh, trust me. You'll be my first call. If, <laughs> if I ever ever in the position to be, you know, I, to actually buy a team, I'll be like, oh, Scott, uh, I, I'm, I'm ready. I, ha-, you know, so actually that. So I have a couple more questions for you and then we'll wrap things up. So one thing I wonder is I feel like there's also lessons here for life. Uh, what? What goes into a turnaround? You know, it's like you get something. Remember, as I was telling you before we hit record, when I was in college, the Warriors were the worst team in the NBA to the point where, you know, you could buy season tickets for $60 on a tear out sheet at the Berkeley campus. In fact, our season tickets for Cal's football team were more expensive than season tickets for the Warriors at that time. Uh, so how does a turnaround like that happen? And then, you know, what happens when you have, you know, an organization like the Spurs where they've just had dominance for so long? And because I, I feel like every NBA team goes through turnaround periods. So how do you, one, you know, bring this turnaround about? And then how do you handle those transition years, those rebuilding years? Yes, I think in, in many cases, um, you know, turnarounds, there's a there's a, there is a formula I'll try to articulate it. One is you have to be realistic about where you are when you when you walk in. And you, you truly have to get a real assessment of where you are. And then you have to have a really clear picture of where you're going. And then you have to be willing to make the tough choices to get there. And, and, and that formula will take place in the form of people. You know, do we have the right people in the right places? That will take place. And do we have a culture that is inspiring, one of accountability, one of challenging, and one will keep our best talent here and, and going? Um, and that's, you know, players and otherwise. And do we have the resources to get us there? And then there's the great arbitrage, um, which very few people ever talk about, and that's patience. And that goes with life, that goes with business, and it goes with sports. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you said five years from now, I want to be able to speak Mandarin, or I would like to understand financial accounting, or I would like to have 2 million followers on my podcast, or I would like to you know, write another book or I would like to, whatever that is. Like, can you imagine if you just took a five-year view and you said, okay, now I understand where I am and I understand where I'm going. Now, what tough choices do I have to make to get there? You're going to have to sacrifice and give some things up. You're going to have to. But can you imagine if you got incrementally better every day towards that goal and you said, okay, I'm going to give an hour a day towards that. How much better would we be? But we don't because we live in this world. Talk about instant gratification. We want it right now. We want everything now. And this is not the way that you find sustainable success and you find sustainable success over time. You know, people who are great, when they say overnight success takes about 18 years, maybe not now if you want to be a YouTube star, but I don't have an interest (laughs) in a YouTube star. You know, I want to be like, I want to create something meaningful. And and like I said, whether that's a, whether that's a, an organization or, or a family or driving change in a community, it just, it takes a plan, the right people, time, and patience. Wow. Well, hopefully I'll get to come and sit courtside with you at some point. <laughs> I would absolutely, as soon as this world opens up, come see me. We'll have some fun. 
I will, I will, I will absolutely take you up on that offer, despite being the weirdo who never even watches sports. Um, you know, like I said, I have watched I'll, I'll NBA games. Two K team too, because I'll have you scream with our two K team. You won't believe how good these guys are. Oh, well, that's like a guaranteed loss for me. It's like when you play those kids <laughs> online. I like I, I we always tease my roommate, you know, who basically, you know, we, he basically jokingly in our household refers to himself as the NBA God. I'm like, you know what? Go play some 13 year old kid online and we'll find out how good you really are. Because uh, I'd done that once. And, you know, you look at their records and, you know, we're like, oh, three or four games here and there. Each of these kids has like 10,000 games under their belt. And you're like, Man, yeah. Insane. And in 10 minutes, they're up by like 30 points. That's insane. So fun. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, so I, I have two final questions for you. Uh, you know, has your definition of success and, and what it means to be wealthy changed over the course of your career and with age? Yes, considerably. Um, you know, I just read this incredible book called The Psychology of Money. If you haven't read it, you should pick it up and read it. It's brilliant. On my list. Yeah, it's on my um, Amazon list. Is it? Okay, good. Yeah. Um, it, it talks about a couple things. One is uh, not moving the goalposts. And um, another thing it talks about is when is enough enough. Um, so sure, when it comes to financial security, um, you know, having gone through what I went through with my folks, um, I'm definitely on the more conservative side um, in terms of savings. So, so that's been good. Um, but what, what I'd have to have to call it, call it a day, if you will, or feel comfortable continues to, to increase over time. And that, that may be a natural fact. I, I wish it weren't true, but, but it is. Okay. Um, and that's something that is evolving um, for me. Um, but I, I'm, man, I'm way, way, way too blessed. Like I said, I, I, don't, I don't have any material needs. My wife doesn't have any material needs. Um, so, you know, I mean, our, our view of success is very different. It's, you know, can we live comfortably? Can we not have to worry about money in the future? And there's some number for everybody that can do that. And then can we help those we love along the way? Uh, and we've both been helped along the way. And, and oftentimes for some people, it might be helping them with an education or other people, it might be helping them with a car that's broken down or another people it might be buying them a car or helping them with some little things. And, and we, we typically stay close to those we love and are close to us. And who are less fortunate financially. They may be may, way more fortunate in other areas of life. They may have a great spiritual center. And they may have a wonderfully peaceful family. And they might be like thrilled and happy working a nine to five job. And that's a gift in a different way. Um, I don't have that gift. You know, I have this insatiable appetite to grow. And, and the only thing that upsets me is status quo. And that's a, that's, that can be, I'm sure you know this, I, I know we're, we're reeling towards the end and I don't want to throw a bombshell in, but I, the older I get, the more I sense that our best strengths are also our Achilles heel and vice versa. Mm. And so if you're a slave to saving, that might be, diff, you know, that's, that's not great for you, right? You might miss opportunities to create experiences for you and your family, you know? So, so there's this, this whole notion of, you know, if you're this, um, you know, rah-rah leader, that's not me, but if you're a rah-rah leader, that might be, be great, but also might grind some people out, you know? So I don't know. I, I just keep the notion of, of, um, sometimes you're, you're, you should think about that as it might relate to you, like your, yeah. your strengths and your, your Achilles heel and how related they are. Wow. So I, I know I've kept you here well over our time, so I want to be, be mindful of that. So I, I have two final questions for you. Um, one we didn't quite get to, but you know, I'm wondering 
what the impact of race relations has been, you know, particularly in the wake of, of Black Lives Matter and everything we've seen uh, in in the NBA, because I, I know, you, you know, we've seen things like players, you know, basically not playing the first quarter and then stuff like that. I mean, if I remember correctly, um, for you guys, like on, on the management side, how does, how has all of this affected your relationships with players uh, and vice versa? Sure. Well, first off, uh, what a gift, um, what a gift to have a platform that is meaningful enough to drive change. And that's, that's not something I ever overlook. Secondly, um, you know, I've been building diverse teams for my career and when I came here to the Sixers, I used to joke and I used to make everybody uncomfortable. They would all look down and I would say, hey, it's great news. We have such a diverse team. We have old white men and young white men. And everybody would <laughs> take their heads. And then I started putting processes in place to change that. And, you know, half of our final candidates had to be diverse candidates. And then over time, it never happens overnight, but over time, you look forward now. We had We had one person of color, director above, and we had one woman VP or Bobby, and you look forward now and 26% of our staff is African-American and we've got nine women who are SVPs or above, including our COO, our CRO, and our two chief marketing officers and our head of HR. And you're thinking like, okay, you know, we were making progress. So when this came, when this, when I mean kind of the, the, the great white awakening, as I call it, when it came and, and, and hit America finally, um, I wasn't embarrassed. I'm not, I'm, I'm proud of what we are as an organization. I'm proud of the diversity we have. And I'm very well aware that the NBA, you know, 75% of the league is black, you know? And I, and I know that our staff has to reflect America. And so, and, and when friends of mine called me scrambling, I, I said to all of them, I was like, hey, brace yourself. Like hiring a chief diversity officer, it's a nice step, but about five years too late. You know, but it's definitely that old adage, best time to plant a tree 20 years ago, second best time right now, for sure. And I just kept saying, like, you know, there is a high risk time for white males running companies, for sure. And you know what? It should be. And we have an obligation because we can do better and we should do better. And to do it, you know, you're going to have to work harder and you're going to have to recruit harder and you're going to have to recruit smarter and you're going to have to have a long lens and you're going to have to take some chances and you got to get out of that notion that, Hey, I'm going to hire the guy I worked with the last time every time. Cause that's what's happening because we're more comfortable hiring people that look like us. We just are, you know? Um, and that's okay. And what I, what I love is the next generation is much better. The generation of my kids is even better and we're, my generation is better than my parents and is better than their grandparents. I just wish the rate of change were faster. And we work, you know, I'm fortunate we have, uh, you know, Doc Rivers is our coach and Elton Brand is our general manager, um, two African-Americans who are incredible advocates. Um, they, they are incredible leaders and, and they're inspiring. And they're inspiring not only to me and our team at work, but also to the community at large in the world. And we need more smart, talented people out there ringing the bell that it's not okay. And so I, I feel like it's been a, been a blessing. The NBA and Adam Silver's incredible leadership on this issue has been, been fantastic. And, and let's hope this is the start because this isn't something that goes away. Um, this is something that we, we spend time, we focus on, and, and hopefully can be a platform to accentuate all the good that's happening in the world. And we're doing, we're doing cool stuff too. We set up a, a buy black program, um, where we highlight five uh, minority-owned businesses in it with by the in the Devil's Community in Newark, 
and in Philadelphia with the 76ers, we've increased our vendor spending to have a, a minimum uh, vendor spend, which, is, which has been an unbelievable education for me. Um, we've invested um, in our first real estate project um, in a community of need, a predominantly African-American community in Philadelphia. And I think that's the first of many. Um, and we're working on some incredible programs. Is it enough? No, it's not. You know, can it be more? Of course it can. Do we like to, to be an example to others? We, we do. And, and this is a place I'm not, I'm not ashamed or afraid to be first. And I'm, I'm not afraid or ashamed to trip and fall. And sometimes I don't say all the right things. And sometimes I don't do all the right things as a leader. But my heart um, is in the right place. My intentions are in the right place. And this is an organization that cares. And it's diverse. It's inclusive. And, uh, and we look forward to hopefully being a leader and considered a leader for a long time. Wow. Wow. Um, this has been absolutely incredible. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I want people to be unmistakable by being their authentic self. I used to have this t-shirt. It said, um, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. And I wish more people lived like that. I mean, it's okay to search and to have a mentor and a teacher, and it's okay to have a role model. Um, but the truly unmistakable people are authentic, or I find, are, are authentically themselves. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with listeners. This has just been wonderful and, and funny and, and eye-opening uh, and insightful. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to other than going to a 76ers game? We'd love to see it at 76ers. You're definitely coming to a Sixers game. Oh, I, I will absolutely take you up on that. I wouldn't miss that for the world. You can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, of course. But most importantly, I would love for you to go to an indie bookshop near you because small businesses are struggling right now and they need your help. So if you're going to buy this book, and I would appreciate it in advance, um, take care of that local bookstore, The Canadian. You can find them online wherever you are. Um, and uh, and keep listening to this podcast because I am, because it's a, a wonderful reminder <laughs> that really matter. So thank you, Trini. Uh, thank you very much. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.